Well, I spent um, a lot of time thinking and praying about my talk this past week, and then yesterday morning I decided to scrap it and talk about something else. So if the talk's a bit rough around the edges this morning, then hopefully you can forgive me, but I think it's the one that God wanted me to do. One of the things that have been bugging me all week was that I came across this article in the New York Times. I don't normally read the New York Times, but I was looking for something else online, and I came across it. And the headline in the article was asking this question. If he was here now, what religion would Jesus belong to? If he was here now, what religion would Jesus belong to? And then the article begins with the writer saying that one puzzle of the world is that religions often don't resemble their founders. Which kind of begs the question, was Jesus religious? Does he want us to be religious? And if so, what kind of religion that bears his name does he want us to belong to? I don't know what you do, but whenever I have to fill in a form, like an application for a visa, and it says, what's your religion? I always want to say, none. But the problem with that is it doesn't really go with my answer to the next question. What's your occupation? I think the US Department of Homeland Security might have a bit of a problem with that. But, you know, the academic in me often wants to answer that kind of question by saying, it all depends what you mean by religion, or it all depends what you mean by religious. Mostly, of course, because I'm trying to buy time to think of an answer to the question, especially if it's a difficult one. But there's a serious side to this as well, because whenever we use a word in conversation with someone, we need to be sure that we both mean the same thing by it. There's an interesting phenomenon that the sociologists have identified in this postmodern world we live in that our parents, and certainly our grandparents, probably wouldn't recognise. And that is a category of people who would describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. As you might expect, it has an acronym that goes with it, S-B-N-R, spiritual but not religious. And maybe that's how you would describe yourself. And it's talking about people who have an awareness and an interest and are intrigued by exploring the spiritual dimension to life. But they have no interest in being religious in the sense that they perceive our parents and grandparents were. One of the great things about postmodernity is that people nowadays have an awareness that they are body, mind, and spirit. And they're interested in exploring what it means to be healthy and complete in all three aspects of their life. Postmodern people seem to sense that there is a dimension to life that goes beyond our physical senses, but is just as tangible and real. So they're interested in other people's experiences and what they've found to be true in their lives. And in postmodernity, it's okay to talk about it. Religion is no longer a taboo subject that you just keep private to yourself, as it was in our parents' and grandparents' day. And the fact that in postmodernity we realise that the scientists who ruled the world in modernity, they don't actually have all the answers. And that means that we aren't going to sit around waiting for them to prove or disprove the existence of God for us. Because we know that that is never going to happen. 
So if we're going to find God and encounter God, we're going to have to use our own sixth sense and explore it for ourselves. So postmodernity is really exciting. But it brings us back to that question, was Jesus religious? Does he want us to be religious? Do you have to become religious in order to be a follower of Jesus? And if so, what does he want his religion to look like? You may have heard Christians sometimes say, if you're exploring Christianity, don't look at the church, just look at Jesus. And you kind of know what they mean, don't you? Please don't let our faults and failings put you off. But actually, the church's calling is to do its best to show people what God is like. Because they can't see him, but they can see us. So the church is called to be a living, breathing advert for Jesus, full of living, breathing examples of how our lives could be transformed when we invite him in to take up residence. You see, postmodern people will not be persuaded that Jesus is true just because of someone like me standing up here and telling them that he's true. They're sceptical about just hearing the truth, but they are interested in their friends' experiences of how Jesus has been true for them, how Jesus has changed their life, and that they can experience that same power and presence of God for themselves, that they too can know God personally as father and friend in the same way. Because the bottom line is that people are interested in a relationship. I mean, who wouldn't be interested in hearing, not just that there's a God, but that this God wants to know us personally and intimately and be part of our everyday lives. And that the reason that God sent his son Jesus into the world was to make that possible. Who wouldn't want to hear that? But they're not interested in a religion. Or at least they're not interested in a version of a religion that they see in the stereotypes and the caricatures. And that some of us who've been put off by churches and hurt by churches have experienced in the past. So whether Jesus was religious and the kind of religion that Jesus would belong to are really important questions for people. Because whatever people think Christianity is like is what they will assume that God is like. So if they think that churches are negative and judgmental and homophobic, they'll assume that God is negative and judgmental and homophobic. If they think the church is out of touch with modern life, they'll assume that God is out of touch. Whatever they see the church spending its time and energy doing is what they'll assume God wants people to be spending their time and energy doing. If they think the church is boring and sad, they'll think God is boring and sad. And if they think that the church isn't pursuing the presence and the power of God and experiencing him in their lives, they'll assume that there is no presence and power of God to be pursued and experienced, and so on. So this morning I want to explore this question, was Jesus religious? And if so, what does his kind of religion look like? And I've only got about 10 to 15 minutes to do that, so I'm just going to talk about one event in Jesus' life and see whether in that we can find some clues to help us answer it. It's in one of the eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life in the New Testament, John's Gospel, 
chapter 8. And rather than just read it, we're going to watch it on video. Early the next morning, he went back to the temple. All the people gathered round him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery, and they made her stand before them all. Teacher! This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death. Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up. Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. Jesus was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up. Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir. Well then, I do not condemn you either. find watching something compared to just reading it but just so you know the dialogue here is almost word for word the bible version so they haven't messed with it so the first thing that we notice about this story is that it's about sex as they say in journalism sex sells if you want to draw a crowd as jesus accusers did then sex works like magic Now, Jesus has been accused before of not being religious enough, but this time it's not just about some religious technicality like what you do or don't do on the Sabbath or which of the Ten Commandments is the most important. This time it's about sex. And it's funny how religious people seem to get very steamed up about sexual sin compared to other kinds of sin. Now, maybe uh, steamed up is an unfortunate choice of words, 
Um, but you know what I mean. Now, I'm not belittling this because adultery is a serious thing. But religious people are way less tolerant of what they consider to be sexual sin than many other kinds of sin, which the Bible has just as much to say about, like gossiping and backbiting and being greedy and materialistic and having bad attitudes and not caring for the poor. But, you know, often these don't even feature on religious people's radar compared to the angst that they generate about LGBT issues, for example. And a generation ago, it was the same with divorce and remarriage. It seems that religious people have a separate category for sins linked to sexuality. So, sex sells. And I'm sure it was exactly the same in first century Israel as it is in 21st century Britain today. So it was no coincidence that this is a story about sex. Because the whole point about what's going on here is that the religious people, the self-appointed religious police, were trying to trap Jesus. And that's because they suspected that he was a liberal, which is still one of the worst crimes that you can be accused of in religious people's eyes. And anything to do with someone's attitude towards sex is the perfect way to test them to find out. The other thing that's no coincidence is that the people who brought the woman to Jesus were all men. I don't know if you've ever noticed, but um, it takes two to tango, as it were. They said this woman was caught in the act, which, if I know anything at all about biology, means there was a man involved. No one commits adultery on their own. So where was he in all this? How come the woman was the only one being accused and threatened with stoning? Now, stoning sounds like a pretty harsh punishment, doesn't it? But that was the law of the land. Uh, Even in this country, we think we're pretty civilised, but it wasn't until about 200 years ago that prison sentences replaced physical punishment as the norm in what we call penal reform. But if you were looking to catch Jesus out and prove that he was a woolly liberal who was soft on sin, then this was the perfect trap to set. But the story really isn't about justice or the consequences of sin. And it isn't about taking sin seriously or the consequences of sin seriously. It's a story about the harshness of religious people who care more about punishing people for sin than they do about saving people from sin. And the reason that I say it was a trap is because for someone to be convicted of a crime in those days, you needed to have two eyewitnesses whose stories both matched. And given that acts of adultery tend to happen in private, it's almost certain that these two men had pre-planned it and they'd laid in wait as voyeurs waiting to pounce. We don't know anything about this woman's circumstances. We don't even know her name. But there's a fair chance that she was a victim of abuse here. The text doesn't tell us, and the religious people really don't care. For them, sin is sin. But we do know that in that society, unless you had a father or husband to protect you, who could work to feed you and house you, then you were as good as on the street. But the men who set up this woman, hello. (laughs) 
But the men who set up this woman and are happy to see her stoned to death, they haven't got the slightest interest in her. They've set her up and they've turned a blind eye to the man's involvement. Maybe he was even a co-conspirator with them. Who knows? Just to make Jesus prove that he isn't soft on sin. So they're using her. They don't care about her circumstances and they don't care about the consequences for her. They're just trying to get at Jesus. And Jesus realises that. Whatever her circumstances were, Jesus knew and Jesus understands. So how is he going to respond? And it's a pretty big test because he won't want to say that adultery doesn't matter and he won't want to say that what's right and wrong doesn't matter. He won't want to say that there aren't consequences before God in how we live and the decisions that we make in this life. And yet, he realises that this woman has been set up and it's unfair and it's harsh and it's unkind. In fact, it's brutal. Now, to us, the punishment for this crime sounds brutal as well. And so, too, therefore, the law of the land that would prescribe that kind of punishment. But there's something that the story doesn't tell us, that Jesus would have known and these religious men would also have known, but they've deliberately ignored. And that is that this same law also said that if you saw someone who was about to commit a serious sin, you had to say something and do something to try to help it not happen, out of compassion for the people involved. But what did they do? They hid themselves away, and they watched her doing it. Who knows how long for? And they said and did nothing. They just watched and waited so they could catch her in the act. Now, if we paused the story at this point, if we didn't already know the ending, we might wonder how Jesus is going to handle it. And actually, the best way for us to guess what he would do is to look at what the Bible has to say about the nature and character of God. Not just in this one story, but in dozens and dozens of other stories as well. Stories that tell us about what kind of God he is and what he's like and how he thinks and how he treats people. Because God's priorities are not to punish people, they're to rescue people. Let me give you three very quick examples that give us a clue as to how Jesus would respond. The first one is from Romans chapter 2, verse 4, where it says that it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. Not the fear of God or the wrath of God, it's the kindness of God. The second one is from the same John who told us about the event that we've been looking at this morning in John's Gospel. He said, we love because Jesus first loved us. We love because Jesus first loved us. And he went on to say, there is no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. You see, Jesus' priority was and still is to love us into a relationship with him, not to scare us into it. For us to love him because we've seen and experienced how much he loves us. You know, I can never understand how religious people think that scaring people into loving Jesus makes any sense at all. 
And then the final one is from something that a man called James wrote. And James is interesting because he's the half-brother of Jesus. Same mum, different dad. So he would have known Jesus very well. And he was one of the leaders of the first church in Jerusalem. And he said this, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that tells you what God's priorities are. And it tells you why James and John and everyone who knew Jesus well would have known how he was going to handle it. James goes on to say that judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. I think there's a little play on words going on here. Judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. But if you think about the religious men in this story, where was the mercy? I've got no evidence to support this, but I wonder if James was thinking about that story when he wrote these words. I wonder if John was thinking about this story when he wrote his words, we love because he first loved us. Because don't you think that would probably have been the woman's response to that love and compassion that Jesus showed her? Maybe James and John were both there at the time and they saw it firsthand. Or maybe the woman told them about it, what she experienced from Jesus that day when mercy triumphed over judgment. And then finally, of course, we've already seen in the video how the story ends. Jesus says, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone. And the reason he says that is not because everyone who's a judge or on a jury has to be perfect. It's because that same law that these men are trying to use to get her stoned also says that those who witness a crime and make a successful accusation, they must be the first to stone the person found guilty. So on their heads be it, as it were. And they knew what they'd done. And Jesus goes back to writing on the ground. We don't know what he was writing or why he was writing it, but if this woman was literally caught in the act, there's every chance that they dragged her out naked just to heap more shame on her, just to make it more salacious, more vindictive, and even more obvious that they had no compassion for her whatsoever. So maybe Jesus was just protecting her modesty by looking down and averting his eyes. And soon these religious men all quietly walk away, one by one, until there's just Jesus and the woman left. And what does he say to her? Where are your accusers? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. Neither do I. Go and sin no more. Now, this isn't a story about sin not mattering. It's a story that's telling us something about the nature and character of God and what his priorities are for us. He's not focused on judging people and condemning people. He's focused on loving people and forgiving people who want to receive that love and that forgiveness. It is about repentance, turning away from how we've been living and how we've been thinking and starting again with Jesus. Yes, of course it is. But 
It's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. We love him because he first loved us. The most famous verse in the Bible is probably John 3.16. That's the one you see people holding up in the crowd in American football matches. But the one right after it deserves to be held up just as much. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And saved is a funny kind of word, isn't it? We haven't got time to go into what it means now. But I think that the woman in the story knew what it meant because that is what she experienced. And I think many of us probably have a feel for what it means as well. It wasn't just being let off the hook that she experienced that day. It was Jesus that she experienced. 